Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 4, verse 1 through 9. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you are with us, especially if you were newer with us. Is this one of your first times with us? We're really glad you're here. And I know that going to a new church, stepping into a new church, isn't often an easy thing to do. So thanks for doing that with us this morning and being a part of this with us. And one of the things that Christians uh, believe is that God's Word, the, the Bible, is not just a, a, a static document that's a historical document that is, uh, but actually that God's Spirit speaks afresh uh, to His people uh, through this Word. And so as we turn to the, the teaching, the sermon each week, we pause and pray and ask that God would do that work. So let me do that for us now. Father in heaven, we do believe and confess that, that your word is how you're revealing yourself to us. And so we pray this morning that these would be more than um, ink on paper, but they would be your words to us, and that you would prepare us now to receive um, the word that we've just heard read. And we pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who is able to do this. Amen. My family and I, we like to hike and camp, and so we have a number of, of things that we do when we go, go camping. One of them is that we have one of those kind of camelback-style backpacks where you have the, the water bladder that you can put inside the backpack to, to carry water with you. It's like we have, actually have an osprey one that looks like, looks like this. And the one that we have, it, it leaks. Now, we're not even, we've never been able to find where it leaks, and it doesn't leak all the time. It just leaks some of the time, and so you're always like, is this just a temperature thing, an altitude thing? Is it condensation? But we keep using it, even though it leaks. And we keep hoping, like, well, maybe, I don't know why. We think maybe it's going to fix itself. I don't know. We keep using this thing. And inevitably, you're on a hike, and by the, the middle of the day, uh, the backpack is, is wet, and whoever's wearing the backpack, they're all wet as well. And we just keep using this thing. Uh, and I, I don't know. I really don't know why. They're not cheap, I guess. They're like, ah, do we really want to replace it? It's annoying. Uh, the leak isn't obvious, but it's there. And, and it makes a mess. It's uncomfortable. But again, I think we just like, well, what else are we going to do with this thing? And I was thinking about that this week, and it sort of feels like life is like that sometimes. That our lives, they kind of, they leak meaning. They leak significance. They, we just have this sense that the world that we live in, it's not enough. Like we eat, but then we're hungry again. We, we drink, but then we're thirsty again. We're, we're longing people 
and we can't ever seem to, to be fully satisfied, that there's this, that this meaning, this significance, it, it leaks from our lives. And, but it's often not obvious where the crack is. It's often not obvious where, where and why it's leaking. Uh, there's, the, of course, the, the great song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Uh, the author, Arthur Brooks, who used to run the American Enterprise uh, Institute, actually says it's not so much that we can't get satisfaction, the problem is we can't keep satisfaction. I can't keep no satisfaction. Because we do, we are satisfied for a moment, but then it's not an, enough, and the accomplishment or whatever it is fades, and we need something else. But we keep going back to these same things, trying to, to fill up our, our sort of leaky lives. And, and often those things that we go to try to fill our lives up, when they leak, they actually, they do, they make a mess of our lives and, and the lives of others. And this is not a new problem, though. In fact, when we go to John chapter 1, we're looking at the Gospel of John, which is a, a narrative account, a sort of a theological biography of the life of Jesus. In John chapter 1, Jesus asked a really important question of those who began following him. The question was, what do you want? What do you want? And that's a really vital question to answer for us, for any of us, to reflect on, what do, what do I actually want? But another really important question, if we want our lives to stop leaking like this, is the question, what does Jesus want? Who is he seeking? What is he looking for? What does he want? And in John chapter 4, we get to see what Jesus wants, what he's after. So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to John chapter 4. Again, it's on page 888 in the Pew Bible. Or if you just want to pull up your smartphone, if you type John and then the number four into your web browser, you will find, uh, there's a bunch of websites out there, you can pull up the text of this chapter. I'd love for you to follow along with me. And in John chapter four, we encounter a woman whose life is leaking. And it's left her utterly alone. And we know her as the Samaritan woman. We actually don't ever get her a name in this account. In, in church history, she's given the name Fotani. We don't actually find out her, her name in the story. We just know her as the Samaritan woman. And Samaria is the region that she's from. So it would just be like talking about the, the Canadian woman or the, the Ukrainian man, just referring to her by the geographical area where she lives. And John introduces this episode by, by linking us to what has just happened and then telling us that Jesus is going to go from where he is in the south up to Galilee in the north. This is chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned, or when the, excuse, yeah, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, and the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, when they had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So basically Jesus' notoriety, his... his um, his kind of fame is growing, and Jesus is not ready for, for that yet in, in his mission. And so uh, John gives us this little aside here, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples. He, Jesus, leaves Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus goes from where he's been hanging out in Judea back up north. Now, since the end of John chapter 2, Jesus has been in Judea, this region that uh, the city of Jerusalem is in. It's where he's been the cleared out the temple. He's done some other things around. He's been in this region. And this region of Judea, this is kind of the central area of, of worship and life for the Jewish people. In fact, that's where we get the language Jew or Jewish from, Judea, this region. 
This is the, the center of that. But Jesus is going to go back up north now to Galilee. This is where he's from. This is where Nazareth, his hometown is. This is where Cana, the city where he turned the water into wine at the wedding, that's where Cana is. And it's also where Capernaum, which is Capernaum, the city of Capernaum is. And that's where kind of Jesus' home base during his public ministry is located. So he's going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and to get there, he either has to go through or around the region known as Samaria. And Jesus chooses to go through Samaria. In fact, John tells us in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Look at this, John chapter 4, verse 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, strictly speaking, geographically, he didn't have to. I mean, it was the most direct route. And you could just read this and, well, that was the most easy way for him to get to the north. But you could go around, and most Jews preferred to do that if they could, because we're going to unpack this more later on, but Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. There's a lot of animosity, so they would prefer to go around. But John tells us Jesus had to go through. So this wasn't strictly a geographical necessity, but there's this pattern in the Gospels the, the term that scholars use for it is called divine necessity, but this particular kind of construction that indicates that this isn't Jesus just on a whim going through, but this is part of God's plan. He had to go through. Part of the divine plan in Jesus' life, if, even if you just Google that language, divine necessity in the Gospel of John, you can find some articles that will list all the different places in John's Gospel where this language is used, that this is part of God's plan that Jesus is following as God himself, he had to go through this area. Now, when he gets there, it's not just about the destination. It's not just about going through, passing through to get to where he's going. It's also about the journey, as it often is with Jesus. And so he doesn't just pass through Samaria. He stops. And it's the middle of the day. It says the sixth hour, that's noon. So it's sun's high in the sky, it's hot, and Jesus is tired, he's thirsty, his humanity is on display. Again, at different times in church history, um, we've tended to either emphasize more of Jesus's divinity or his humanity, but this is one of those clear places where John is showing Jesus is a real human, he's thirsty, he's tired, and so he stops at this well. The disciples go into town to get food, and Jesus is stopped at this well by himself. And he's alone there because nobody comes to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, to draw water. So Jesus is sitting there by the well, tired, thirsty, by himself. And then someone starts to approach a woman alone. Again, it's the middle of the day, which is a sign, likely, that she's an outcast. That if she was connected in her community, that she would go in the morning or in the evening with the other women who would go to draw water and get water to bring back for, for cooking and cleaning and all the necessities of the home. But she's there by herself in the middle of the day, which is an indicator that she's not a part of that social network. And it wasn't just this task that they had to do, but this is, you know, the well was literally kind of the water cooler moment for them. This is a place where you would, you do this work together and you talk and have community. And she is excluded from that, apparently, and shows up here in the middle of the day. Now, this sets up a moment for us because Jesus, as a respectable Jewish man, someone who is known as a rabbi, 
would probably not have even, by convention, responded if this woman spoke to her or to him, but he initiates a conversation with her and says, hey, could you give me something to drink? Can you give me something to drink? And the woman is shocked that, one, I think that this person's even talking to her, too, that something about Jesus, she can tell that he's Jewish. And so she says in verse 9, So the Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? And then John gives us this little explanatory comment and says, For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Again, the Samaritans were utterly despised by the Jews, and they would have never shared dishes, cups, drinking. This is like considered, they would have been considered unclean, like dirty. Like, I don't want to share anything. That's the idea of having something in common with them. We don't share anything in common. I'm not going to use your fork. I'm not going to drink out of your cup. And it almost kind of the, the, the feel is like in the Jim Crow era, where you had separate drinking fountains, separate water fountains for different people. And Jesus is here saying, I, I want to drink out of the wrong water fountain. And so she's shocked. And Jesus says back to her, look, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. Specifically, he says, for a drink of living water. Now, that language of living water, I think we tend to read immediately this, like, significance into it of, um, of spirituality. But, at, like, the original language, the idea just means water that's moving as opposed to water that's, that's not. So that's the way you would talk. Living water was a stream or a river as opposed to a well or a cistern that was kind of still maybe more stagnant water. But we know in John's gospel in particular that Jesus is regularly using these images to tell us something more, to tell us something about spiritual life. So yes, the bare kind of most literal sense, he's saying, I can give you a stream, a river, but this living water also indicates something more. But like Nicodemus, who in many ways we're supposed to be, see as a contrast to this woman. Nicodemus was the, the Pharisee, the religious leader that Jesus talked to in John chapter 3, and John fam- or Jesus famously tells Nicodemus that you must be born again, and, and Nicodemus is so confused, like, how can I go back inside my mom and be born again, Jesus? And you're just missing it. In the same way, this woman here, she takes Jesus kind of literally at face value, and she says this, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. You're the one asking me for a drink, by the way, Jesus. You don't even, you can't get water this way. You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. It's probably 100 or more feet deep. So it's not like you can just dip a cup down and you need a bucket. Where do you get this living water, Jesus? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jacob, this is now the, the, one of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from Genesis, the founding fathers of the Jewish faith community that this group of Samaritans identified with. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, we have to be careful, too, that we know in in John's gospel this language of eternal life isn't just referring to heaven someday, this sort of future life in God's new creation. 
but it also refers to a quality of life that is possible even now in a relationship with Jesus. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All this, Jesus, this sounds great. I'd have to come here by myself every day and drag these jars of water back to the town. That's awesome. Can you give that to me? It's almost like you get the sense maybe she's kind of still kind of poking Jesus, poking kind of fun at him like, yeah, come on. Well, that, that would be great. What do you, can you actually do that? And Jesus says to her, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, hang on to that language. Notice that Jesus says what she said is true. That's going to be significant later on in this conversation, that Jesus is named that what she has said is true. But first, we want to note right here that this is the first thing we see that Jesus wants, that he's after. That Jesus, Jesus wants our shame, not our scrambling. Jesus wants our shame, not our, our scrambling. And we can't, we, we don't know. We, we just, John doesn't give us all the details. We don't know the specifics of her situation. Was, was this woman, was she a serial adulterer and that's why she has had all these marriages? Could be. But also we know, too, that women couldn't initiate divorce. And so maybe also it's just that she's a victim, actually. That she's been abandoned by multiple husbands for some reason. And maybe it's some combination of both, right? Like, maybe she's not the easiest person to live with. Maybe she's found bad dudes. I don't, we don't know the story. And I'm actually a little bit grateful for that. Because I think for us as readers— Wherever the more kind of prominent note is in your life, maybe you feel like you have been someone who's been abused by others, who's been taken advantage of, who's been hurt by others. Maybe you know in your heart that actually I've been that person, that I've treated others unfairly, that I have. Either way, Jesus, Jesus wants the shame of that. Again, for most of us, it is some combination, right? We all have both of those dynamics probably in our lives in various ways. But either way, Jesus goes right to that point of pain and shame in her life. And this is no longer a discussion about Jacob and wells and buckets and about propriety and purification. It's about shame and, and how we try to deal with it. And when we try to deal with our shame on our own, we usually handle that by scrambling. And what I mean by scrambling is this. One of my uh, Old Testament professors when I was in seminary, uh, who was a, an expert in the Old Testament, but also did a lot with counseling, he wrote an article and, on kind of how this shows up in our lives. And he says this, he says, scrambling is when someone is scurrying about desperately trying to handle themselves, each other, God, and the world. And there's absolutely no rest here. When we encounter our own sin, our shame, often our response is to scramble. To try desperately to handle ourselves, one another, God, the world, and it just leads to, there's no rest there's hiding, there's denial, there's digging in, there's covering, but no rest. And Jesus wants to step into those places in your life and take that shame and replace it with rest. He's not afraid of it. He's not embarrassed by it. 
He won't leave you in the midst of it. And, and look at what's happening here. And this was significant for me. I've, uh, this is a passage I, I've read and I've studied and even taught on before. But what I'm about to share is something that was fresh for me in studying this passage this time. And again, maybe if you've been around the church and you've heard this story taught before, maybe this would be fresh for you as well. But it's significant that Jesus meets this woman at a well. And I had never really pondered that, but as I was doing some reading and thinking upon this, where else does this, do wells occur in the biblical story and what happens at wells? And what you find, particularly in the book of Genesis, is that wells are often romantic places. In fact, you know, we mentioned earlier Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac and Jacob, these two sort of founding members of this family that God is bringing salvation through to the whole world, Isaac and Jacob both meet their wives at wells. And even at this time, that was kind of considered a, pl- a place of, because of that history of, of romance. And I find it fascinating that this woman, who's gone back to the well five different times looking for a husband, now encounters Jesus at the well. And earlier, John the Baptist in John chapter 3, what we looked at last week, refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And then we get this woman at the well. It's like this is not what we would expect as the, as the picture of who would be the ideal bride. But none of us are, right? The Bible uses this imagery regularly that the church, us, his people, are the bride, that Jesus is the groom that God relates to his people as a husband to a wife. And the reality is, you all, that all of us in that spiritual realm, we, we've had at least five other husbands or more. We've had at least that many. And yet Jesus is coming for that. He wants that shame. He wants that. He says, ask and I will give you living water. All of those places where those other, those other husbands, those other wells that you've gone to that have not satisfied you, he says, I will give you living water. I will take your shame. You don't have to scramble any while, anymore. So I just even wonder if you, if you ponder, if you think this week, where are, using that metaphor, where are those leaky wells? those leaky places in my life that I go back to that don't satisfy, that don't fulfill, that always let me down, that promise stuff they can never deliver. There's so many things like that in our lives that promise, you know, whether it's your career, whether it's your work, maybe it's food or alcohol or sex or all these different things that say, if you will just give yourself to me, I will satisfy you. I will quench your thirst, but they never do. They only make it worse. And Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you from that. God, speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, said this, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me. That's the first thing. And notice what he, how he just said, they've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. That's the first thing. And two, they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can't hold water. We, we all have leaky lives. We're trying to fill them with things that don't satisfy 
But there is a fountain of living water waiting for us if we will go to him. But so often, right as we're on the verge of, of really finding that satisfaction, really connecting with that, we change the subject. And that's exactly what happens here. Because Jesus speaks this one's like, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've actually had five. The one you're with right now um, is not uh, your husband. And her response is, oh, you must be a prophet. It's almost like she says, okay, Jesus, well, enough about me. Uh, let's talk about you. Um, what, t- what is it like being a prophet? Tell me about that. And, but it's actually significant that she refers to him as a prophet because as a Samaritan, the Samaritans didn't hold the same view of the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews had. They only thought that the first five books, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, it's the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, those first five books were the only ones that they considered legitimate scripture, which means the only prophet they had was the prophet Moses, who is generally considered to be the, the author of those books, and the one that he promised would come. So Moses in the book of Deuteronomy says, there's going to come another prophet like me. Again, in the history of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, we have lots of other prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, other ones who come. The Samaritans didn't acknowledge those. So it's significant. Jesus says she's calling Jesus a prophet. It's a hint that she's already seen that maybe he's more than just a mere human. She says then, okay, this is how she continues to kind of change the subject. It's like, well, let's, if you're a prophet, let me ask you kind of a key question here. Where should people worship? Because you Jews say that the right place to worship is down in, uh, in Jerusalem. And we say it's right over here in Mount Gerizim. It's almost like she could point to this mountain. So which is it, Jesus? And this is kind of a key marker. She knows this is kind of the litmus te- test moment. Are you in or are you out? Are you with me or are you with them? She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people to worship. And the applied question there is, so, okay, so who's right, Mr. Prophet? Which mountain is right? And here's where I want to bring in this kind of long history of hatred between these groups of people. Because in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the whole northern part of Israel. And when that, it was a brutal conquest. You can read accounts of this. It was absolutely brutal. But they, they just decimated the Israelites in that northern part of the kingdom. They took many of them into captivity in the Assyrian Empire. And then they repopulated that land with Assyrians and others. And then eventually, some of these Jews who had been deported, these Israelites from the north who had been deported to Assyria, they returned. And now what they did is they they intermarried with these Assyrian and other people groups. And so they are no longer considered to be, by the Jews, like pure Jewish people. They have mixed ethnically. They've aligned in ways throughout history and the intertestamental period that have just made Jews think that these are enemies, that they are unclean, that they are to be despised, that they are not God's people any longer. They have different theology, different politics, different culture, different language, all of it. You can read in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 17 if you want to read more about the history of how that unfolded. But since then, Samaritans and Jews operated completely differently. And they were always at odds with one another. So when she asked this question about the mountain, Jerusalem or this mountain, there's more than mountains. There are ways of life. There are ideologies. There are signs of, of who do you align with? Are you in or are you out? Right or wrong? Good or bad? And she wants to know, where, where are you, Jesus, on this? 
And the thing is, is Jesus isn't after either one of these mountains. He is actually after both of them. He's after all of them. And he says to this in, in verse 21, end of verse 21, Jesus says this, woman, he says to her, believe me that the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're just saying there's, there's a time that is coming and it's, and it's here now where actually neither one of these things are what actually count. You worship what you do not know, Jesus says, to her, referring to the Samaritans, this limited uh, Bible they have, that they, they have some, some messed up theologies. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation comes is from the Jews. But verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember what Jesus said to this woman when she confessed and said, I have no husband. She's right, you have told the truth. She was willing to be honest about that. And she didn't tell the whole truth. She just said, I don't have a husband. She said, you've told the truth. She's beginning to step in to becoming someone who can worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am. The translation here brings across, I who speak to you am he. But he says to her, again, she had the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. In Exodus, when Moses is sent by God to his people and to go to Pharaoh to deliver them, he says, who am I going to tell them who sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. He says, I am. I, the one who's speaking to you, am he. I am the Messiah. I am that prophet that Moses said was going to come. I'm he. This brings us to the second thing that Jesus wants, and that, that is that he wants our, our worship, not our ideology. Jesus is not interested in these boundaries between Samaritans and Jews. He's not interested in these mountains and what they represent. He wants our worship, and worship at the core is God revealing and us responding. That's what Jesus, that's why Jesus says we must worship in spirit and in truth. That we are people made in God's image. We're made in the image of a God who is spirit. We, in some way, make the invisible God who is spiritual visible. We are made in his image, and we mirror him to one another, and we reflect him back to himself as we respond to him in trust and love and obedience and surrender. Worship is, is not just about singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. It's not less than that, but it's about responding to all of God in all of our life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and all that we do is responding to who God has revealed himself to be. And Jesus has revealed himself profoundly to this woman in this moment. He's just said, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you're waiting for. How will she respond? And that's what we see next. And it's almost like if John was making a film here, you'd go to a split screen at this point. And on, on one half of the screen, you would see this woman going into the village of Sychar to tell everyone that she knows about Jesus, 
And on the other half of the screen, you would see his disciples coming out of the town back to meet Jesus at the well after buying food. Now, she goes into this town to tell everyone that she's been avoiding all this time. And we know, right, that she's, she's been an outcast, and she, but she's no longer ashamed. She goes in and starts telling everyone, come and meet this one who's told me everything I've ever done. You, got, you know, people, you know what I've done. This guy told me everything I've ever done. You've got to come meet him. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, and remember, she's the, the woman who is, you know, she's got messed up theology. She, she, you know, she's had this kind of life that's been a wreck. And she starts bringing all these people to Jesus. Now, the disciples who are Jewish, they have the whole Old Testament. They've been following Jesus. They keep kosher. They've been in the town, and they don't come back to Jesus with anyone. They haven't brought a single person back to Jesus. They just come with some food, and they're confused why Jesus is, he says, I got food that you don't know about. And they're like, wait, we brought you food. Jesus, are you not hungry after all? Where, where'd you get this food? I thought that's why you sent us to go into town and get food. And they, again, they're totally missing it. This is, my food is to do the will of the Father. But the contrast between these two groups, and it shows that the disciples, like they don't have a vision or a category for the Samaritans being a group of people that Jesus wants to make disciples of. <laughs> like, it's, we're just stopping over here. This is not a place where Jesus is expecting to add disciples. They're, Jesus, can we just get through this to get back to Galilee, back home, and we're going to start doing this disciple-making mission there. But Jesus looks at them and says, look around. The fields, they are, he says, white or ripe or for harvest. They're ready to be harvested. The disciples are looking around, they're like, we are not seeing a harvest here. We are seeing a group of people that we despise, that we hate, that we can't stand. Jesus says, look again. See what I see. I see a group of people who I've come for, that I'm longing for. This brings us to the third, the third thing here. That Jesus wants everyone, even them, whoever them is. Again, because they look up and they see enemies, idolaters, appeasers. Again, Jesus is saying, you got to look again. Look with my eyes. I see a field that is white for harvest. New Testament scholar Craig Keener points out that Jesus crosses strict cultural boundaries that separated these different ethnic groups. He crosses a gender boundary. He crosses a moral status boundary. He's going crossing all these boundaries. And as he does this, he's pointing to the new and ultimate unity in the Spirit, where Jesus is going to make a new community out of these people, a new unified family out of these people who were formerly enemies. And as we look at Jesus' encounter with the woman at Samaria, we see him refusing to deny her ethnic identity. He doesn't deny her ethnic identity or her, or her gender identity at all. But he doesn't allow those things to become a barrier between them because Jesus' love has no barriers. And when Jesus crossed those barriers, it was a catalyst for an incredible harvest. If you look down to verse 39, how this account ends, you see it. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. They get it. 
God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son. Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. Salvation comes to the Jews. It comes, Jesus is a Jewish man. It comes to the Jews, but it is for the whole world. The Samaritans get that better than the disciples do. Could it be that our division along racial and political and cultural and class lines are one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel going forth in our context and moment? Listen to what Tony Evans writes in his fantastic book, Oneness Embrace. He says, The great tragedy today is not so much that our society is still divided along racial, cultural, and I'd add political and class lines, but that God's people, the church, are even more deeply divided. Oneness in a nation structured by the confines of racial autonomy necessitates that our knowledge of and love for one another must be intentional in nature, just as Jesus was with the woman at the well. Just as it was in Samaria, oneness across racial lines is the greatest evangelistic teaser to the presentation of the gospel that we could ever broadcast, both locally and abroad. Jesus wants them, whoever them is. And here's the good news, is that all of us were them to Jesus. I mean, Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of us were enemies. All of us were outside. All of us were others to Jesus. And he came to rescue us. He crossed the lines. He identified with our shame. And so we have the power now to do the hard, joy-filled work of harvest together. Because Jesus emptied himself so that we could be filled this week, I got to learn about a mosaic that was recently installed at um, Wheaton College in Illinois. I have a picture of it here. So this is a big, you can't really tell the scale. This is a big, huge mosaic that's on a wall going into an auditorium. And actually, one of our uh, pastoral residents at our downtown campus, his wife, was one of the artists that helped to install this mosaic a couple years ago at Wheaton College. And it's a depiction of the scene of Jesus and the woman at the well, and when you zoom in and you see just their, their faces for a moment, you'll notice that Jesus is depicted with a, a halo, a round halo around his head, and she's depicted with a, a square halo. And that's because in uh, this kind of iconography style, a square halo represented someone who was still living, and a round halo represented someone who had died. And the imagery that the artist is trying to communicate here is that the living water that you see pouring from Jesus' hands there is giving her life through his death. That because Jesus died on the cross, and as he was dying, he said, I thirst. We can have our thirst quenched. He was broken so that we could be made whole. My question is, have you encountered Jesus like that? Again, worship is all about responding to what God has revealed. And so this morning, I want to give you a chance to respond we're going to respond through communion in just a moment. But first, I want to give us a chance to respond through prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you sent Jesus to come to us when we were your enemies. When we didn't want you, you still wanted us and came and chose us and brought us to yourself. And pray now as we turn to receive communion that we would be refreshed in the knowledge that Jesus has given us himself. And that there's no way to the life that we long to live other than through receiving him. That he cannot give us the life that we long for apart from himself. 
So would we taste and touch and receive that good news in joy.